What is up, Bitcoiners? Welcome to FedWatch. Ansel and I have an absolutely fantastic show for you today. We interviewed the great Lynn Alden. Uh, Lynn Alden is the founder of Lynn Alden Investment Strategies, and she's been putting out absolutely fantastic work throughout the years and recently has started contributing to the Bitcoin space. So it was awesome to get her onto the show to pick her brain about a ton of different subjects, including Bitcoin's role in the greater macro space. This is an absolutely action-packed and dense episode. So I think you guys are going to really like it. Before we get into the show, want to talk to you guys about our sponsors. First and foremost, we have Paxful.com. Paxful is the P2P exchange that is pushing the envelope on Bitcoin adoption around the globe. Uh, They are one of the top exchanges in Africa, one of the top exchanges in South America. They're operating out of the U.S., Uh, They're operating in Russia, and they are bringing together a massive network of peers that are trading gift cards, that are trading every kind of fiat currency, that are trading all sorts of alternative money substitutes for Bitcoin. And as an American, as someone who is a global Bitcoiner, you can put your Bitcoins to work on Paxful, and you can make some money with your Bitcoins in the peer-to-peer economy. So uh, whether you are you know, living in Nigeria and Africa and trying to get access to Bitcoin or whether you, you know, want to provide liquidity and trading, um, you know, trading infrastructure on Paxful, it's a great place. So make sure to check out Paxful.com and uh, go backslash podcast so they know that we sent you there. Second, I want to talk to you guys about BitcoinBlackFriday.com. This is an initiative from Bitcoin Magazine to really uh, stimulate the Bitcoin ecosystem, especially highlighting the circular economy. Uh, So go to BitcoinBlackFriday.com. Check it out. There's a ton of amazing deals from merchants that accept Bitcoin. There are also great ways to earn Bitcoin for people that are trying to get started in the Bitcoin ecosystem. Uh, And lastly, if you're a merchant, you can post a, uh, a deal for Black Friday and have it go live whenever you want on the website. Uh, so go check it out. There's a form for merchants to apply there as well. So BitcoinBlackFriday.com. Uh, lastly, I'll hand it over to Ansel. He can plug the Bitcoin Dictionary. Yeah, check out the Bitcoin Dictionary, Bitcoin.cc. Uh, you can demystify Bitcoin jargon. So we don't, get, we don't cover a lot of Bitcoin speak in this uh, podcast. We kind of keep it to the Fed speak and then we uh, break it down more simply for Bitcoin. But once you get dive into Bitcoin, you need to uh, kind of have a background on some of these terms. So BitcoinDictionary.cc, you can get uh, over 180 terms uh, of uh, important to Bitcoin and kind of know the definitions and the backgrounds of those. Let's, uh, I, I just wanted to, before we jump into the episode, um, I thought this was great, man. What did you think? Because I, I, we tried to pick apart inflation versus deflation, right? And we tried to, uh, this is kind of a continuing thread on our podcast. uh, And it seems to be gaining more traction, people thinking of a deflationary environment or maybe a disinflationary environment. So um, I, I thought we tried to pick apart that. What did you think about the episode? Yeah, no, it was absolutely fantastic. And, you know, Lynn just brings so many insights from so many layers um, in society, right? History, macroeconomics, politics. Um, I really love her analysis because of that. And I think her ideas have evolved and changed to incorporate this, you know, evolving trend here. So uh, it was really interesting to get her uh, analysis. And it was really interesting, to, you know, looking back, comparing 
Danielle D. Martino Booth, Jeff Schneider, Stephen Van Meter, and then now Lynn. You know, really all of them um, say things that are similar, but also say things and in, in have predictions and, and have analysis that are completely opposite. So I think your point in the podcast that, you know, none of us sound money people can agree on what the heck is happening. Like it is a real problem. And uh, we're so very far away from kind of, uh, you know, drowning out uh, the, the noise and, and honing in on the signal. Exactly. Yeah. She, she just brings a wealth of knowledge and it was great to meet her. I, I think we did something different than the podcast that she has been on in the past. We tried to do something different at least and dive a little bit deeper. All right, guys, without further ado, Lynn Alden. What is up, Bitcoiners? This is CK, and I'm really excited to bring one of the, you know, one of the emerging stars in uh, at least the Bitcoin macro space, but obviously someone who's been extremely, uh, you know, established and, and been doing some fantastic work in the greater macro space. Uh, Lynn Alden, welcome to FedWatch. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Lynn, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience for those who you know haven't been paying attention and, and don't know you already? Yeah, so for people not familiar with my work, uh, my background uh, kind of blends uh, engineering and finance. Uh, so I started out in engineering. I went more and more towards engineering management or managing the finances of an engineering facility. Uh, and I've been investing for you know about 15 years now and, and writing about it publicly for several years. Uh, so I, I run a research firm, Lindahl Investment Strategy. Uh, so we have free content. We also have a also have a paid service, and then I do some partnerships. So I partner with George Gammon, and I partner with uh, Elliott Wave Trader. Uh, you know, for people that kind of want to blend certain things. Like uh, I focus on fundamentals, so I partner with some technical anal- analysts, and I partner with with George. Uh, so you know, kind of a couple different ways to to see my content. Awesome, yeah. And again, I've I've been really enjoying your entrance into the Bitcoin space in particular. Uh, we are going to be talking a lot of fundamentals on this show, but before we get into all of that, wanted to ask you. What's your experience been like joining the Bitcoin community and starting to you know, tweet about Bitcoin and write about Bitcoin? I know a lot of people have gotten a big bump from Bitcoin, uh, from Bitcoin enthusiasts on Twitter in terms of engagement. Kind of curious you know, what you're seeing there and uh, if you've experienced anything in particular. Oh, it's a bit positive. Uh, you know, mo- I think most of my, um, my Bitcoin interactions on Twitter, because uh, you know, my, my website's been around for a while and I also write for Seeking Alpha. And so, you know, that, that's not very Bitcoin heavy. Uh, but when I started writing about, uh, you know, Bitcoin a little bit and talking about it on some podcasts, I definitely got uh, a lot more, you know, a, a section of the Bitcoin community began following me on Twitter. So that, you know, that definitely added probably, you know, several thousand followers from that. And so, you know, it kind of, it, it kind of blended a couple of different worlds because on, you know, on Twitter, I have the, you know, the gold investors follow me, uh, you know, pretty notable extent. Uh, back row investors, uh, stock investors, uh, you know, they, they, that's kind of the set I already had. And then uh, now I'm kind of like uh, pre- pretty firmly entrenched in the Bitcoin community as well, which, you know, so far it's been very positive. Uh, you know, I, I guess the downside is occasionally I get, I get spam emails about why I should go to, you know, uh, Bitcoin Satoshi Vision or something. But, you know, besides that, it's, it's all good. Hi, Lynn. So, yeah, we, we've heard you talk a lot in the past about, um, you know, different times in history. You're a real... Uh, uh, good economic historian from my point of view, but uh, I wanted to see if you could tell us what time in history uh, is today's market like in the past? Is it like the thirties, the forties, the seventies, you know, what do you compare it to? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's actually a hard one to answer, but uh, I have done a lot of kind of historical comparisons. Uh, so I, I most closely link this to the early 1940s. Uh, and that's, you know, there's a couple of different reasons for that. And it's never, there's never like a perfect, um, you know, uh, pair comparison because uh, there's that quote, like uh, history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. Right. So it's kind of like, you know, it's always an echo from the past, but sometimes you kind of blend two different decades together in a kind of a new way. Uh, so, I, you know, I can talk about that a little bit, but I think the closest period is probably the, the really early 1940s. Uh, and the reason for that is, uh, you know, um, Ray Dalio, the, the founder of Bridgewater, popularized the concept of a long term debt cycle, which is so, you know, over five or 10 years, you have the short-term business cycle, which is the normal kind of a, you know, re-leveraging re and then deleveraging event, uh, the boom and bust cycle that we all know pretty well. Uh, but the thing is that, you know, over multiple short-term business cycles, uh, debt never deleverages all the way down. Uh, and then it starts kind of building up again. And that's, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. And a lot of it due to uh, kind of monetary policy, they cut interest rates and they kind of, they kind of uh, encourage that deleveraging to stop and start building back up at a pretty quick rate. Uh, so over multiple business cycles, you get lower and lower interest rates and you get lower, you get higher and higher debt levels. And, you know, that kind of repeats itself until interest rates hit zero. And that's kind of when the, the music stops and, and we kind of have a very different environment. And that only happened, uh, you know, about twice in the past century. So uh, back in, in the early 1930s, uh, that was the previous long-term uh, debt cycle where we had a bunch of debt built up in the system, interest rates went down to zero, and the central bank had to turn to all sorts of novel things to try to uh, inflate their way out of that because they, they ran into the zero bound. And that happened again uh, in, in, you know, the aftermath of the 2008 uh, financial crisis. So that's, that's the second time we ran into a massive kind of Debt, debt accumulation and ran into the zero bound. And so those two periods were very similar. Uh, you know, the 2008, uh, 2009 crash compared to the 1929, early 1930s crash. Uh, so if you take that kind of starting point and you shift it forward to the next decade. Uh, so, you know, the, the 1930s was a very kind of a, a, a heavy kind of, we had a banking crisis in the early part of it. And then we had kind of a lot of uh, central bank policy. And it wasn't really till the 1940s that we started to get really huge fiscal deficits. And of course that was tied to the war. And so if you, if you kind of go forward to now, we had a banking crisis in you know, 2007, 2008, 2009. Uh, and then we had kind of, a, kind of a slow recovery throughout the 2010s. You know, we had a stock boom, but we, had, we didn't really have fast GDP growth. And of course, now in 2020, we have the pandemic and we, we have fiscal deficits that, that kind of rival some of the years we saw in World War II. Uh, so in many ways, uh, the 2020s are shaping up to look more like the 1940s uh, in the sense that we're running very large fiscal deficits and we're still kind of on the downward slope of, of a long-term debt cycle playing out. Uh, and this is also, you know, the last time we had federal debt to GDP this high was also in the 1940s. Uh, so we have to go back to that period to find a similar uh, outcome. And now, I, I do think that you can point to the, the late 1960s as kind of a similar environment, right? Because we had very low interest rates, we had very high stock valuations. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think that's kind of the second closest comparison. But I would, I would point more to the early 40s or kind of a blend between the early 40s and the late 60s. That's kind of the, the two periods that I think are most applicable. So, I mean, one key difference between now and those time periods were, and at least those time periods, there was at least some sort of gold standard uh, involved with the dollar. Um, can you talk about the fact that the dollar itself as a pure fiat uh, currency is the standard, is the global reserve currency now, and gold is really kind of detached from that, and what, you know, how that changes the dynamic? 
Yeah, part of the monetary policy in the early 1930s was changing the gold peg. Uh, so because, you know, before that crisis, they had uh, gold was pegged, so it was about 20 bucks an ounce of gold. And then when they when they uh, de-pegged it and re-pegged it, they pegged it at, at about 35 bucks for an ounce of gold. And that was part of their currency devaluation process that, that normally uh, comes with long-term debt cycles. Because when they run into the zero bound, uh, they instead turn more and more towards printing money and uh, currency devaluation. Uh, so... Uh, you know, we, we saw that play out. We saw, you know, it wasn't immediately immediately inflationary, but as you move further into the decades, it, it did get more inflationary, especially when that fiscal spending heated up. Uh, but, you know, there's still kind of some sense of stability there because it still was pegged to gold, even though it was pegged to gold at a lower rate. Uh, now, that system started to kind of break down uh, in the 60s, but it was kind of underneath the surface because you still had the official gold peg, at least in an international sense, right? So it was actually Americans were banned from owning gold. And it was no longer redeemable, redeemable for gold, but as an international trade unit, it was still technically gold-backed. And so we started to kind of have that breakdown because we were running very large trade deficits. Uh, so our gold was flowing out of the country. Uh, and you know the, the euro-dollar market, so the offshore dollar market uh, was really kind of growing like wildfire. And that just didn't work very well with the with the gold standard they had set up uh, because you know those dollars could multiply and then those were redeemable for gold. Uh, so that kind of combination was slowly kind of decaying uh, the gold standard un underneath the surface. And of course, it didn't really come to a head until 1971 when they went off the gold standard and you know the, the dollar devalued very significantly. Uh, so that's in some ways why this period I think is somewhat similar to to the late 1960s as well, because that was kind of a, a major change uh, in the global monetary system. So if you look at, you know, the, the long-term debt cycle was 30s and 40s, and again, the, you know, the, uh, this, this past kind of 15-year period. So that's kind of one set we can look at. Uh, but then the other set is to look at big changes to the global monetary system. So the way that kind of multiple countries uh, organize their finances. So of course, you know, after World War II, you had the Bretton Woods system, uh, and, but that kind of changed in the early 1970s to the petrodollar system. And we've been under that standard ever since for, ne for nearly 50 years. Uh, so uh, I think now we're kind of in the process where we're, we're going through that long-term debt cycle, which is very similar to the 40s, but we're also potentially kind of slowly altering the, the, the global monetary system here. We're kind of running out of room. Uh, so that's why I think there's some similarities to the late 60s as well. Gotcha. That makes sense. And I guess, how would you characterize... Uh the shaking up of the monetary system today, I think uh, that could potentially transition to our next question. But um, yeah, how is this, a, you know, equivalent to the 60s? Well, it's in a sense that so the 60s, the problem there was that the existing system is breaking down underneath the surface. So it didn't break on, on, on top yet, but it was breaking down underneath the surface, which was that the United States was running very, very large trade deficits. Uh, and so gold was flowing out of the country. So that that was you know becoming unsustainable. And it's kind of one of those things that didn't show up on the surface until they had to make a political decision to, to back away from it. Uh, so the system we have, uh, you know, the problem we've had for the past 10 or 20 years uh, is, you know, ever since we had the petrodollar system, which was kind of the, the savior after the Bretton Woods system, uh, you know, they left that system. The petrodollar system was the, the second attempt to kind of uh, to link the dollar to something. So they, they, in some sense, linked it to oil, right, because they made it so that uh, politically, uh, you know, all over the world, oil's price in dollars pretty much. Uh, so if France wants to buy oil from Saudi Arabia, they pay in dollars, even though the dollar is neither of their currencies. And that makes it so that, you know, countries on the world demand dollars so they can buy oil. Uh, and also it makes them so that they, you know, if they want to have that ability to buy oil and other commodities, they want to have some dollars on hand. 
so they can stabilize their own currency and they have that kind of store of dollars as needed. So they, they you know, they, they run, uh, hopefully in many cases, they run trade surpluses, they take those dollars and then they, they put them in treasuries and they kind of have that store of value. Uh, so, you know, that worked well for a while, but the problem is in order to be, in order to run uh, the global reserve currency, we have to make sure that there's a lot of dollars out there. Because if the whole world's gonna price commodities in dollars, we have to get a ton of dollars out there. So the way that works is basically there's a ton of demand for the dollar, it makes it really strong. So it makes our export competitiveness weak. And it also makes our import power very high. So it kind of influences us to run uh, big trade deficits. And that helps get dollars out there. So it's kind of this, you know, this, this, you know, depending on how you look at it, it's a virtuous cycle or a vicious cycle. So we, we run these big trade deficits, we get dollars out there. Uh, now, that worked well at first, uh, right? But after decades of that, we, we've really kind of exported a lot of our industrial base. You know, we, we, uh, in, in, even compared to other developed countries, we made less and less stuff. We exported it all to other places that are, you know, more competitive in that regard. And so we, we've really kind of displaced a lot of our, uh, our workers in that sense. Uh, and, but now it's getting, it's kind of getting towards the straining point of that system because the U.S. is no longer the biggest commodity uh, importer. Uh, that's China. Uh, and in addition, you know, after World War II, the U.S. was something like 40% of global GDP, right? Because Europe and Japan were crushed and the emerging markets were small. Uh, whereas when, you know, those developed countries rebuilt back up over the decades, and as you had the rise of China and other emerging markets, the United States is now like 20% of global GDP, depending on how you measure it. There's a couple of different ways you can measure it, but it's a much smaller share. So it's much harder to run the whole global system on one country's currency if that country is only 20% of world GDP. Uh, so, you know, we're kind of gradually moving probably to a more uh, decentralized or, uh, you know, more like multipolar system so less kind of dollar centric and more like you know several currencies that can potentially price oil so we've seen kind of interest out of russia lately for pricing their oil in euros and for example if you look at trade between china and russia you know two years ago it was like 85 percent dollar based and now it's down to like 45 percent dollar based so you know it starts with some countries it's not all countries at the same time but we are starting to see a little bit more kind of a multipolar uh, you know, kind of currency system slowly emerging. And also we have, you know, new technologies that kind of enable that to some extent, like stable coins and other things that, that kind of uh, give, uh, you know, private companies or policymakers more tools to kind of uh, get around some of the current payment systems. Just a quick follow-up there. Um, do you think the kind of competitors to SWIFT that we've seen coming out, uh, like I think the weren't the Japanese working on one and, and the Germans were working on one uh, over there and the Chinese, of course. Uh, is that play a role in some sort of multi-currency uh, standard that you see? Yeah, absolutely. Because in order to have a true multi-polar, multi-polar or multi-currency system, you have to have, you know, other systems outside of the SWIFT uh, system. So, you know, because right now we control all the, we control the main pipes in the, in the U.S. We can, we, you know, most of that financing goes through New York, essentially. Uh, but under that other system, if you have kind of true kind of multipolar systems, then you have kind of an, you might have like a China-based system, you might have a Europe-based system, and you might have a U.S.-based system. So in that sense, the dollar is still a reserve currency, but it's not necessarily the only reserve currency. Uh, so you have kind of more kind of spreading out of what constitutes a reserve currency. Awesome. Yeah, I've never heard that before. Com- combining the 40s and the 60s together because of the two different type of uh, characteristics of those times. That's that's uh, pretty fascinating. Okay, I'd like to jump into the inflation versus deflation debate. This is like one of my personal concerns out there because um, what I guess what's concerning about it is that 
macro people and gold people or, or sound money people, Bitcoiners, they can't um, agree on what is happening. Do we have inflation? Do we have deflation? Maybe it's a deflationary environment with inflationary spikes within that. Um, so yeah, it's just concerning to me that we don't know what's going on and what's your take on the uh, inflation deflation debate? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's a challenging debate because there's a couple. It's a couple of different facets to it. So one comes down to how you define define inflation. So sometimes you have different camps arguing with each other because they define it in different ways, right? So some some economic schools define inflation as a growth in the money supply, right? So by definition, you have an inflation, uh, and it just kind of goes into say asset prices or other things. Whereas another definition of inflation is consumer price inflation. So you take a basket of goods. Uh, you know, there's a couple of different ways to measure it. Uh, many of them are understated, but you know you have at least like a benchmark, and you kind of see you know what's happening with consumer prices. So those are kind of the two broad definitions of inflation that people look at uh, and then kind of debate over. And then the other complex part is that you, it's kind of you have to think kind of in second order way. So we have a very inherently disinflationary environment in the sense that uh, large amounts of debt tend to be uh, you know deflationary. Uh, rapid technology growth tends to be deflationary. Uh, slowing demographics is deflationary. Uh, you know, globalization, uh, offshoring of, of labor to cheaper markets, uh, you know, lowers prices in many cases and is, is deflationary. Uh, you know, that doesn't apply to say healthcare or education, right? So we haven't been, the things that we haven't been able to offshore tended to go up in price a lot faster than things we, we've been able to offshore. Uh, so, uh, you know, if you take all those deflationary forces together, we have, you know, we've, we've been in a 40 year trend of lower and lower, uh, you know, official uh, price inflation. Uh, on the other hand, uh, when you get to kind of the end of a long-term debt cycle and you have this much debt relative to GDP in the system and you have this much wealth concentration and you kind of like the economy just kind of grinds to a halt because it's just it's, the, the money's not circulating anymore and there's really no way to, to pay off those debts. Nominally, usually what happens is you get a ton of policy response, fiscal policy response, monetary policy response to purposely drive inflation. And then you kind of devalue the debts. Uh, you know, you, instead of defaulting on debts nominally, you devalue them in the sense that you, you, you create a ton more currency and those debts get paid back in, in weaker currency. And that's what, that's what we generally see happen in long-term debt cycles. So, you know, I think the nuance is that we have a very uh, disinflationary backdrop, but then the, their policy response to that can be very inflationary. And then there, you know, there are other things that can add to that. If you get supply disruptions, uh, if you reverse globalization and bring kind of supply chains closer to home, you kind of end some of those deflationary trends. And actually, if you look at, uh, if you look at global trade as a percentage of global GDP, that actually peaked back in 2008. So you, you can make a, a pretty compelling argument that, that globalization kind of peaked in 2008. And ever since then, it's been kind of plateauing and, and if anything, slightly declining. Uh, and also the same thing happens if you look at, uh, you know, the percent of foreign revenue of the S&P 500, uh, that also peaked in 2008. So, you know, we have a pretty clear trend that we've kind of, we've reached peak globalization most likely, or at least, you know, even if we, even if we hit a slightly higher high, it's not really accel accelerating anymore. And if anything, it, it's, it's on the, you know, a, a mild decline. So you touched there on fiscal policy versus monetary policy. Um, so obviously, I think that's the stimulus, right? The, there was just another one I get um, that was suggested, or or what? What's the word for it? Put forth by Pelosi, two point four yeah. trillion. And um, but are these going to lead to? Do you think temporary inflation, like a shock of inflation, like we might have seen in the forties, uh, and then 
uh, return to a deflationary type of environment? Um, or is it, is it possible that fiscal stimulus can create an inflationary feedback loop on itself that can have sustainable inflation in the future? It, it can. I think it can create a sustainable loop, and especially if if those fiscal deficits are structural, which they increasingly are. Uh, so in the 1940s, they didn't really have structural deficits. They had massive uh, deficits in the 40s due to the war, but they were able to then kind of uh, quickly tone those back down. So you had this kind of very brief, you know, kind of it, the 40s was a very inflationary decade. You had uh, three big spikes of inflation, but they quickly got that under control in the 50s, and you started to kind of get that, uh, you know. You, you, you inflate a lot of the debt away, uh, but then from there, you're able to kind of work that back down uh, pretty easily. Uh, whereas now, because we're, we're, our society is so top-heavy in terms of demographics, and we have very large entitlement programs that we, you know, we, we promised ourselves decades ago, and so uh, you know, deficits were growing before the pandemic. Uh, so we were already up to, you know, we had kind of recession-level deficits uh, right before this all started. Uh, and now, of course, we have kind of depression-level deficits or war-level deficits uh, which is kind of a you know the you know it's tied to this specific recession. Uh, so you know a lot of people thought that the that the monetary policy of of 2008 2009 would be inflationary, but uh, for the most part that sort of monetary only response is not very inflationary because all they were kind of redoing is is recapitalizing the banking system, going back up against a deflationary shock, right? But when you get to the point where you're, you're injecting trillions of dollars purely into the real economy through the fiscal spending route. And of course, the, the monetary policy still plays a role because they have to buy a lot of the bonds uh, because there's not a lot, enough private buyers to buy all of that massive bond issuance. Uh, so whenever you have the fiscal authority and the monetary authority working together to run very large deficits that are monetized, uh, that tends to be inflationary. So we saw that in the 1940s, and you know they ran massive double-digit deficits multiple years in a row, and that, that ended up being pretty inflationary. Uh, now, here... We've had this this one really big kind of deficit year, and we have seen a rebound in inflation expectations. So we had we had a big deflationary shock in March. We, we've seen we've since seen a kind of a rebound in inflation uh, expectations and reported uh, CPI. Uh, now it kind of comes down to to whether or not this next stimulus passes and when. Uh, so you know originally Democrats were looking at three trillion, Republicans were looking at one trillion. Uh, Pelosi was talking about then uh, toning it down to 2.4 trillion. I believe the one they announced uh, yesterday was like 2.2 trillion. Uh, Republicans have moved up to like 1.5 trillion. So it looks increasingly likely that you know eventually they're going to meet somewhere in the middle around 2 trillion. But of course the question is when will they pass that before the election? Will it end up getting kind of dragged out? Will they pass it in in February? Maybe we'll see. Uh, so I do think that. Uh, you know, they're going to probably run very large deficits, uh, you know, for the next several years because they have a they have a 5% of GDP background deficit that they went into this with. That's kind of the structural demographic deficit. But then on top of that, you have the, the extra deficits from unemployment benefits, uh, from lower tax revenues, and then any sort of stimulus that they put on top of that, especially because a lot of that will be deliberate to try to inflate away some of the debt. Yeah, I think Christian has a, a good question for you next on the uh, how does Bitcoin fit into that. Uh, but I wanted to ask a question about the competitive like devaluation. So, yeah, uh, if the U.S. is doing all this fiscal stimulus, Europe is doing all this fiscal stimulus. And then there was just a headline today that, you know, Europe has the worst deflation in over five years, even after all of their stimulus. So, um, like, how does 
uh, competitive devaluation work into this, um, and even including China in there, because uh, there's been a pretty significant move of the dollar versus the renminbi over the last uh, month or so. Absolutely, I think. That? Yeah, I think there. Are, I think there are two kind of major variables to look at. So one, of course, is the rate of change of of that kind of fiscal spending, or you know, the the relative size of that relative to GDP. So so far this year. The United States has been one of the most aggressive uh, fiscal stimulus. Big, you know, we're running uh, larger deficits as, as a percentage of GDP than most of our develop, developed peers. Uh, so that can kind of play a role uh, in, in relative speeds of different currency devaluation. And of course, some political jurisdictions have an easier time running deficits. Uh, so in Europe, because they're, you know, they, they, all these different sovereign countries shared their, their currency system, they have kind of the extra bureaucracy layer when it comes to running big deficits. So they're actually, they kind of have an extra kind of layer to go through, which really slows down and reduces the deficits that they can run because they have to get more people to agree. Whereas in say the United States or China or Japan, there's, there's less hoops to go through. So China would have the, the, the least hoops to go, to go through because they're more authoritarian. Uh, Japan, they're, you know, they're not very uh, politically polarized, so they have the ability to run pretty big deficits if they, if they choose to. The United States is polarized, but with fewer layers to go through than Europe. Uh, so that's kind of, a, kind of the first point is the rate of the, of the different deficits and the monetization that's happening. Uh, the second thing is kind of uh, a major variable for currency strength is the current account balance and the trade balance. Uh, so when you have a country that's exporting more than it's importing, it's running, you know, a trade surplus and, uh, you know, that tends to strengthen the currency, right? Because if, if you, if their currency weakens, it makes their exports even more competitive and it reduces their import power. Uh, so if anything, it can, it can widen their trade surplus. And so that, and that tends to strengthen the currency. And one of the case studies I like to do is to look at Japan. So Everybody looks at Japan as, you know, because they did the most quantitative easing as a percentage of GDP relative to most other countries, right? So they, their, their central bank balance sheets over 100% of their GDP. And that really started in 2012. Uh, so prior to then, they had, you know, pretty gradual QE. Uh, but from 2012 uh, through now, they, it just kind of, you know, it went parabolic. It just, it just utterly, you know, the balance sheet just soared. And so they had... Back in 2012, they, you know, Japan usually runs trade surpluses and current account surpluses. And, but in 2012, uh, there was a lot of economic weakness and they were actually kind of running a, a small kind of trade uh, deficit, which is unusual for Japan. And their current account balance was, is, is roughly balanced. You know, they weren't really negative there, but they weren't positive anymore. And so they started this massive QE program. And so they, they actually did pretty quickly devalue the yen. Uh, so from 2012 to 2015, the yen devalued pretty significantly compared to the dollar. Uh, but by that point, their trade balance kind of normalized. So their, their trade balance went back to about zero uh, from being in a mi minor uh, deficit, and their current account balance turned positive again. Uh, so from there, even though they kept doing QE at a very fast rate, their currency stopped weakening compared to the dollar. And if anything, it actually mildly strengthened compared to the dollar from there, because that that trade, uh, that balanced trade situation kind of sets a floor to how quickly they can devalue their currency. And so if you look at, you know, Japan uh, and Europe and China, they all have, uh, you know, current account surpluses, essentially. Uh, so, so Europe has one, Japan has one. China used to have a big one, but theirs has been decreasing in recent years, but they still are kind of, a, you know, roughly balanced in that regard. The United States is different because we have a very large uh, trade deficit uh, and current account deficit. Uh, so, we kind of are more vulnerable if we all kind of print together, if you all print aggressively, 
the U.S. can potentially devalue theirs more than the others. And that's something I think to watch out for. And it's not, it's not going to be linear, right? Because there are occasional periods where, where they stop running large fiscal stimulus, like we have kind of, kind of happening right now. So, of course, we're getting a rebound in the dollar a little bit. Uh, we're getting kind of less devaluation happening uh, for this kind of few months. But I think over, over kind of a multi-year period, countries that have kind of a bigger trade deficits and that are running kind of larger fiscal deficits, they tend to be more exposed to uh, devaluation. So, Lynn, I, I want to ask you the the Bitcoin question, but I before get in, getting into that, I kind of want to like push back a little bit and kind of get what you're thinking here. Uh, when Jeff Snyder came onto the show, um, you know, he was like, you know, these countries like China and Russia, the only reason they're creating alternatives is because there's not enough dollars. Like, there's just this dollar shortage. Like, how does the dollar being the global reserve currency kind of play into and make the United States different than um, you know, some of these other countries that, yeah, they have more, you know, they have more uh, manufacturing and more exporting, you know, onshore, but, you know, they're not exporting their currency. Yeah, so we actually, there's a couple of different kind of time periods you, you can look into. So, of course, if you look back, you know, you know, if you go back to the 30s and 40s, uh, Britain was a global reserve currency at the time, and that didn't really stop them from devaluing. Uh, you know, they, they devalued even more than the dollar did back then, even though they were, they were, the global reserve currency. And of course, there's always factors there because they were more heavily involved in the war than the U.S. was in many cases, uh, because the U.S., you know, we had the luxury of, of fighting offshore, right? So uh, now if you go, if you uh, fast forward to early this year in March, uh, we kind of saw that global dollar shortage, uh, you know, kind of uh, come to a head. Uh, so, you know, the, there's so, there's, you know, at the time, I think there was like $13 trillion uh, in, in, in offshore USD debt. Uh, and so these are that's debt in corporations and uh, sometimes at the sovereign level of countries that can't print dollars. And so what happens is, you know, when we had that kind of pandemic hit, we, you know, we had China kind of, uh, they were cutting their, their commodity imports. So we had a, a big decline in commodity prices. And that, of course, had, you know, resulted in less kind of like global trade happening. So you had, you had less dollars going around the system. So it's harder and harder for, for those companies and those countries to get dollars to service those debts. So that's what they mean by a dollar shortage. And so you, you saw you saw a very rapid spike in the dollar in March. Uh, so it kind of, you know, it, it briefly sank from, you know, maybe the dollar index was like 99, it sank to 96, but then it shot up to like 103, like in a matter of weeks. And so that's because everybody was scrambling for dollars at the same time. Uh, now, the problem there is if it gets acute enough, uh, those foreign, uh, you know, uh, sources, you know, they they begin selling U.S. assets. So even though they had 13 trillion dollars in U.S. debt, they actually owned 40 trillion in U.S. assets. So that includes stocks, corporate bonds, treasury bonds, uh, real estate, and of course some of those are more liquid than others. So treasuries tend to be the most liquid. So what we saw in March and April was that the foreign sector was selling treasuries to get dollars because they had that dollar shortage. Now, the Federal Reserve can't have that because the treasury market beca became illiquid in March, right? So you can't, have, you can't have the most liquid market in the world become illiquid and stop working. And we saw kind of a, a brief period where even though yields had declined, uh, they then quickly shot back up in March for that. There's kind of a two-week period where, where yields were going back up. And that was because foreigners were selling treasuries. So what the Federal Reserve did was they stepped in and they bought a trillion dollars worth of treasuries with new dollars in three weeks, right? Right in that kind of late March, early April period. And that kind of reliquified the treasury market and it kind of helped ease the dollar shortage. And then of course they, they launched all sorts of swap lines and things like that to try to, uh, you know, kind of loan dollars to foreign sector 
so that they stop selling treasuries. And I think that's kind of that, that policy response you have to look into. So left to its own devices, there is a dollar, a dollar shortage and that can create a very strong dollar environment. But because that, you know, when that shortage plays out, it's so damaging to US markets that the Federal Reserve essentially has to come in and ease that, that burden. And so if you take into account policy response and when you're running very large deficits, when you're monetizing those deficits, and when you're kind of making sure that the dollar shortage is not acute, the overall kind of picture is that you get a, a dollar devaluation. And that's so far what we've seen this year. So the dollar is down year to date, even though it's the global reserve currency during a pandemic, you, like, uh, you know, kind of left to its own devices, you'd think that would go up to some extent because people would flood into the dollar. They'd want to hold the strongest currency. They want to hold the global reserve currency. But then the policy response against that can, can kind of push back against that. Okay, so you think the policy uh, response actually is effective in, in pushing against that natural cycle? Um, I guess let's let's switch it over to to Bitcoin. Like, where does Bitcoin play into your macro equation? Uh, so it's similar to gold, but kind of on steroids, right? Because whenever you have, uh, you know, the pure like we have now, you're likely to have negative real interest rates for quite a while. So if we go back to the to 30s and 40s example. Uh, you know, you had kind of uh, negative real interest rates. And there is about a 40-year period where if you bought a 10-year treasury and held it to maturity, uh, you, you lost money relative to inflation. Uh, so there are kind of brief years in like the 50s where you could, you could get kind of a mild positive return. But for the most part, there was a 40-year period from kind of the late 30s to the late 70s where if you bought and held a 10-year treasury, you lost purchasing power, even though you got your money back uh, because you got your money back in, in weaker dollars. And of course, that overlaps almost perfectly with the period where it was illegal for Americans to own gold, because that would have been one of the major release valves uh, that you could go to. So if you're just kind of losing money by holding treasuries, you can instead hold money, kind of save your money by holding gold. And so whenever you have that negative real yield environment, it's really good for scarce assets because, you know, the biggest downside for scarce assets is that on their own, they don't necessarily pay a yield. And then sometimes you have an expense for transacting in them or storing them. Uh, but if real yields are negative, that, that whole opportunity cost goes away. Uh, and of course, in some cases, you can get yield with those investments. So for example, India has gold bonds that have a positive yield. Uh, and now there's institutions where you can get a yield with Bitcoin as well. Uh, you know, for, you know, basically, you take on some counterparty risk to get a yield. Uh, so it kind of, whenever we kind of back in that environment now where we have negative real yields, and that tends to be very good for those sort of uh, monetary assets that are outside of the system that have scarcity. Uh, so, you know, gold's kind of the, the blue chip version of that because, you know, the market capitalization is something like $10 trillion. It's very well established, uh, whereas Bitcoin is the newer version of that. So it's a much smaller market cap, uh, so it's more volatile, but it also means it has a lot more upside potential. Uh, so that's kind of how I'm playing it, where, you know, when you have this, you know, because sovereign debt is so high and because they're, they're actively trying to uh, encourage higher inflation, you're very likely to have negative real yields for, for many, many years. And that's just an extraordinarily good environment for commodities in general, but especially monetary commodities. So kind of just to follow up on that, like, so you think Bitcoin's going to perform well. Is there a chance for Bitcoin to become a gold-esque relevant asset in the global monetary environment? I think over time, uh, you know, I think it's, it's kind of got like a long process to go through. Um, at the current time, gold's kind of special because, uh, you know, it kind of counts as risk-free uh, among banks uh, around the world, right? So that's kind of a privileged uh, status. Uh, Bitcoin, you know, because it's a small market cap, it's more about the potential for what it will become. 
Uh, so right now it's a very volatile kind of speculative asset, uh, but people that are buying it are kind of looking really far ahead and saying that eventually if enough money comes into this kind of uh, network, the volatility will dampen, the market cap will be a lot higher, and then it can be a lot more kind of useful as kind of a store of value. Right now it's more of a speculative store of, of growth expectations. Uh, so. You know, we've already seen, uh, you know, a couple different companies start to, to hold some of their cash in Bitcoin. Uh, and we've seen some interest from, uh, you know, kind of the smaller sovereigns uh, that are kind of uh, giving some incentives to have uh, Bitcoin mining in their country. Uh, so I, I do think that, you know, especially on smaller companies uh, or smaller countries, you could start to see that, uh, you know, Bitcoin be adopted in a similar way to gold. And then if it, if it keeps catching on, it could it could work its way up from there. Angel, do you want to jump to your question? Sorry. Yeah, I can just ask the next next one here. So, um, comparing Bitcoin then uh, and this era, or at least the existence of Bitcoin during this era, compared, you know, going back and comparing it to the '40s and the '60s, um, do you think that uh, Bitcoin has the possibility to make it different this time, or do you think that you know we'll have another uh, a decade of slow and uh, deflationary environment, uh, and eventually we'll get out of this, like, a, you know, the 30s into the 40s and the 50s. I think that's very hard to predict because in that sense, you're kind of predicting human behavior. Uh, so, but compared to the 30s and 40s, we have a lot more information now, right? So we can monitor this stuff in real time way easier than they could back then, right? So they, they couldn't just, you know, go up on the online back then and say, okay, inflation is this much and, and my treasury is yielding this much. Wait a second, that's not, that's not good. Why is my treasury losing value? Like, it's just kind of, you had less information to work with, much slower information, uh, so now we kind of see this all playing out in real time. We have social networks where we can all communicate the ideas to each other. Uh, so that definitely adds a whole nother, uh, you know, kind of order onto this whole thing, right? Because you have the you have the deflationary backdrop, you have the inflationary response, but now we also have, uh, you know, more accessible information and faster ways to share that information. Uh, so yeah, you could definitely see kind of a, a quicker exodus, uh, especially from faster money or smarter money out of the system. Uh, now, a lot of money has certain mandates, uh, like pension funds or, or uh, you know, insurance companies or other sort of institutions that have to hold, say, a lot of cash, a lot of treasuries, things like that. Um, you also have kind of fund managers that they say they have to buy stocks or they have to buy bonds. Whereas if you have kind of a discretionary allocation, so you can buy any asset class you want and you have all this real-time information, if we do see inflation starting to occur, right? Because we're still kind of in that, that still kind of disinflation environment, right? So we, we still have kind of low, at least low official CPI, uh, you know, kind of measures and low kind of official uh, inflation expectations as measured by the, the tips market. Uh, but, you know, if we go forward into 2021, 2022, 2023, if you do start to see higher and higher inflation, but you still have very low kind of uh, bond yields and interest rates, uh, I definitely think you could see kind of a more disorderly rush uh, into some of these uh, scarce assets like gold and Bitcoin. So, I mean, yeah, I guess my last question is kind of like bringing the comparison back to like the 60s and in uh, and, and that period of time, or sorry, the, the 40s in that period of time, you know, gold kind of suffered the fate of, you know, being centralized and getting confiscated and getting 60, you know, 6102, um, as they say in the Bitcoin community, um, like, do you see Bitcoin as, you know, if it does take on a more uh, legitimate role, does it properties kind of prevent it from suffering gold's fates in your eyes? And, and how do you kind of see it compared to like, how do you see 
Bitcoin's emergence as uh, rubbing up against governments? Sure. I think it you know inherently has more resilience than gold does to like confiscation and things like that, right? Because it's 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 very hard to um, uh, get around that. Now with gold, the interesting thing was uh, it was technically illegal to own it, but it actually wasn't very well enforced because you know they didn't they didn't really send people door to door to check on it, right? So uh, it was if you had it in your like uh, bank deposit box, uh, you know it, you probably lost that, uh, and if you were to get caught, uh, there's a pretty big penalty for it. Uh, but back then. You know, a lot of people just didn't really stick to it and they didn't really have a good way to enforce it. And so it's, it's kind of a, it's not a great kind of rule to begin with because it's hard to, if you, if you pass a law that you can't really enforce, uh, it's not necessarily a very good law. Uh, so now Bitcoin is, is even harder to enforce if you, if you were to ban Bitcoin. Uh, so I think it, it kind of depends on kind of what time period you look at, right? Because the longer this goes on, the harder and harder it gets to uh, disrupt Bitcoin, right? Because, you know, right now, if, if they if they went all out kind of next week and they said, okay, you know, you can't, you can't operate exchanges, uh, it's illegal to own it, uh, then basically, you know, you have kind of a big shock to the network because you won't be able to have institutional money flowing into it. Uh, you'd have kind of a lot of uh, weaker weaker hands get out of it, right? Because it's now legal. Of course, you still have kind of a black market uh, uh, happening, and you'd have people in other countries that where it is legal to keep doing it, right? But you'd have you'd have a shock to this relatively small network. Uh, however, the longer this goes on, so the more institutional money that flows into it, the more the more companies that put a percentage of their of their you know their treasure reserves into it, the more uh, the the bigger and bigger assets under management that Fidelity's uh, you know uh, institutional level custodian brings into it, uh, the more kind of uh, Paul Tudor Jones of the world uh, invest in Bitcoin, the hard, and the bigger the market cap gets, so the more kind of a uh, amount of value that they would be disrupting uh, by doing something like that, and the more kind of a uh, political donors that own Bitcoin now, right? So it, the more entrenched it gets, the bigger it gets it gets almost impossible to stop it at a certain point. So, you know, I think now because there's still not a ton of institutional money into it, there's still some degree of vulnerability. Uh, but the, the more you go, uh, kind of the, the faster and, and more invincible that train gets. So our last question here before we wrap it up is going to be on portfolio construction or, you know, how, how do you compare uh, Bitcoin in an individual's portfolio uh, to gold and maybe um, a lower risk thing like bonds? Um, what, I've heard you speak about this in the past. Can you just walk us through um, uh, what you think of in that regard? Uh, so I think in, in some senses it's similar to silver in, in the sense that it, it holds, it, it kind of works like gold, uh, but with a lot more volatility. You know, the problem with bonds in this environment is that, you know, they're going to produce very, very low returns over the next decade and probably negative real returns. Uh, because if you have a treasury yielding less than 1%, the Fed's inflation target is 2%. They want to try to overshoot it. Now, whether they can or not depends in part on fiscal policy, right? So they, you know, the Fed can't just choose what inflation is, but, um, you know, especially because, you know, it's different ways to measure it and stuff, but you're almost guaranteed to have a negative uh, real return in treasuries. Uh, so that's kind of the opportunity cost for having a, a bond allocation in the sense that it's low volatility, but also low returning. Uh, so, you know, historically in a very low interest rate environment, putting some of that in gold can be, you know, in some cases it can increase your volatility slightly, but also you have that kind of defensive, relatively low volatility asset. Uh, and then silver can kind of supercharge that, right? So silver has much bigger up and down swings than gold, uh, but tends to follow kind of certain uh, similar patterns. Uh, so it's kind of a, a more risk takers version of gold. Uh, Bitcoin is is similar in the sense that it's a, it's a smaller market cap. There's a lot, like a lot of volatility. Uh, so it kind of just, it, it changes what your position size can be relative to your conviction. Uh, 
Uh, so, you know, if someone's 70 and they don't know a ton about Bitcoin, uh, you, you can't necessarily put as much of your portfolio in it that you could compare to, say, gold, as an example. But if someone's younger or someone's very knowledgeable about Bitcoin or very kind of heavily involved in, in, in that and kind of has high conviction on the asset, they can dial it up you know, a little bit more than, than say, an older investor or a more hands-off investor could. Uh, so I, I view Bitcoin as, as kind of an, a somewhat uncorrelated asset in the sense that it's, it's some is somewhat correlated to liquidity events, right? So if you have kind of sim, uh, fiscal stimulus shut off or turn back on, you kind of get stocks, gold, and Bitcoin all, often going in the same direction. Uh, but over kind of a multi-year long term, uh, you can have things like gold and, and, and Bitcoin decouple uh, from the stock market. And so Bitcoin is, is potentially, the, you know, Paul Tudor Jones described it as the fastest horse in the race. And I think that's kind of a good way to describe it, that if, if some of these more inflationary scenarios play out, or even if you just have this, this really kind of negative yielding environment with very large deficits kind of play out, regards to what inflation ends up being, uh, that's a very good environment for scarce assets in general. Uh, and, and Bitcoin, just as kind of the newer one, as kind of one with a lot of kind of mobility to it, uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's very popular among younger investors, uh, I think it has kind of a lot of upside potential. So I like it as, you know, I, I kind of made the case to the public as sort of having a non-zero Bitcoin position to start with. I think that's kind of a good way to think about it. And then people, of course, can dial it up from there, depending on their, their age, their risk tolerance, their conviction, and, and their knowledge in the asset. Fantastic. Well, Lynn, this was an absolutely information-packed and dense episode. We touched on a lot of different subjects, and uh, I, I learned a lot just from hearing you articulate uh, these different scenarios and, and making the comparisons to the different time periods. So thank you so much for coming onto the show. Thank you so much for what you do um, in the macro and uh, Bitcoin community in general. Um, just to close it out, where can people find you and... Uh, yeah, I guess if, if you want to, uh, for anyone to reach out to you, who do you want to hear from? Uh, sure. So I'm at lindalden.com uh, and I'm also at Lynn Contact on Twitter. Uh, so people can reach out to me if they have questions. Uh, I try to answer my emails wherever ever possible. Uh, like I said, I partnered with uh, uh, George Gadman for uh, his program and then also work on elliotwavetrader.net. So we actually have someone that, for example, does uh, uh, Bitcoin kind of technical analysis as well there. So the, the kind of different flavors of how they want to you know, look at my work. Fantastic. Well, again, thanks so much for coming on to the show. You guys can find me at CK underscore Snarks and at Bitcoin Magazine. You can find the Schnup at Bitcoin Magazine. You can find Ansel at Ansel Lindner and make make sure to look up the Bitcoin Dictionary at BitcoinDictionary.cc. Thanks to everyone for watching and listening. Thanks for having me. A quick reminder that all of the content in this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not construe the information as legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell securities or any other financial instruments. Do your own research.